just like to ask that you would pray with me as we prepare to, to worship the Lord through the study of his word. Father, thank you for your grace and your mercy. I thank you for opportunities. And I pray for Brandon and the people that he was able to spend time with, not just the students from Iowa State that went with him, but also the people that they impacted while they were there. I thank you, Father, that you're never just about one thing, that you're able to work in us and through us and on us. And I just ask that you would continue your work that you began and that you would continue to sow the seeds of the gospel. I pray that the seeds that have been sown would be watered and they'd be nurtured and nourished, that they would sprout and grow and bear much fruit. And I ask now, Father, that as we open your word to a text of scripture that is very convicting to me and one in which I I know that your spirit wants to work in each of our hearts to draw us closer to you through, I pray that you would receive our worship with joy and gratitude and that you would accomplish the purpose that you have for us this day through your word we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, Many of you know and have already come to the understanding that uh, Marla and I are now grandparents for the very first time, so I thought we would uh, give you a picture of the, of the little guy. Uh, in the next slide, we can look at that one. It's, uh, you can't read it maybe, but Leo Tyler Smith uh, was born 7-17-19, weighing 8 pounds, 5 ounces, 21 and a quarter inches long, and mom and dad are doing well, at least last time I talked to him. And I didn't just put this up there because it was, you know, a great event, although I probably would have put it up there anyway, uh, just because I uh, am excited. In fact, people have asked me, they said, well, aren't you all really excited? Yeah, I'm really excited, but the problem is this past week I had a really nasty cold, and so I didn't even know if I was going to go be able to be in the same room. And so I was in the, in the hospital room with a mask on my face and not able to take pictures, not able to get really close to, to Leo. I haven't yet held the, the boy in my arms, but looking forward to that day. But one thing that I want to bring out is that an obscure, very, you know, one person in the billions that are on the planet is a demonstration to us in a very real way of God's love, of God's goodness. But the psalmist said, children are a gift from the Lord. It's a gift from God. And this morning, as we look into the text of Scripture, we see that God uses not just the prominent people, not just the important people, to teach us very, very important lessons. I want you to Think about it, if you will, with me, that some of the most profound lessons on loving worship of God are taught to us by an obscure and very insignificant person in the Scriptures. And the passage that we're going to look at is in Luke chapter 7, beginning with verse 36 and through verse 50. And here our instructor is introduced to us in the home of Simon the Pharisee. And her story serves to expose, and I'll say this maybe is eviscerate, to, to, re, to remove the bowels of the, the teachings of the Pharisees and to exonerate the person, the proclamation, and the practices of Jesus Christ. And through her 
lessons, you know, the, the Pharisees, they had just previously to this, they had demonized John. And they had scorned Jesus. They said, you know, John was the, you know, he was of the devil and that Jesus was a friend of sinners. And so here we have a story that, that becomes the perfect occasion for proving that Jesus' wisdom is the wisdom that really bears fruit, which he said in verse 47, no, verse 35, yet wisdom is vindicated by its children. Well, here we see the wisdom of Jesus vindicated by the children that his wisdom produces. And so we come to this story, an uninvited woman, an uninvited woman of the world becomes our instructor in why Jesus is deserving of loving worship, and then she instructs us on how we go about that. And so I want you to turn in your Bibles or get to your device and uh, get to Luke chapter 7. We're in verse 36, or going to begin in verse 36. And here, from the example of this woman, we discover five expressions of loving Christ which flow freely from those who have been forgiven much. I'm going to read the text and then we'll unpack it. It's a little bit of a lengthy text, but we're going to read it anyway because that's God's word and that's where the power is. Now, verse 36, one of the Pharisees was requesting him to dine with him. And he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And when she learned that he was reclining at the table of the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with the perfume. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, I want you to keep this in mind, he said to himself, okay, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. Now read the next phrase. And Jesus answered. What did Jesus answer? Jesus answered what the man said to himself. Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. Which of them, therefore, will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, that's Jesus saying to Simon, you have judged correctly. And turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, he turned to the woman. He was looking at her, but he was speaking to Simon. And this is what he said. Do you see this woman? I entered your house, and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason, I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, Your sins have been forgiven. And those who were reclining at the table with him began to say to themselves, Who is this man who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Go, your faith has, or he says, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. 
at least five ways that she manifests loving worship that serve to be lessons for us in what it means to lovingly worship Christ and to why and as to why it is that we would lovingly worship Christ. First we see in a little bit of background to this I want to first of all acknowledge that Joe Stoll's book Loving Christ has been very influential in my understanding of this text and as we think about this why would Simon Invite Jesus. Uh, You need to read the context, but there is this controversy. He thought, I don't know, I think he probably thought it would be a novel idea to have this famous and yet very controversial person in his home. How better to get his friends to come and how better to entertain the neighbors and to see Jesus in action and to put him to the test. And so the guest list for this gala was probably a veritable who's who of all of the political and religious and social hobnobbers in his community. And so he gathered them together, and Jesus had said he was a friend of sinners, or they said he was a friend of sinners. Now they see he's a friend of social elites as well. He wasn't just exclusive to the sinners. He would gather with the social elites. But we see into this setting, into this very prestigious and austere group, comes a woman, uninvited she came. A woman of, now it says in the New American Standard, a sinner, okay? She was a woman of ill repute, okay? A lady of the night who occupied the lowest rung on the ladder of social acceptability. She was a pariah to the people who were gathered there. She would not be one that they would want to gather. Now, what we don't understand is culturally, in the days before TV, in the days before Netflix and live streaming of movies or going to the movie theater or going out to eat or Facebook or the Internet, it was socially acceptable for anybody to show up to one of these sort of gatherings. You couldn't participate in the meal, but you could be a spectator to listen to the conversation. And so it's in that context. But the arrival of this woman and the apparently reprehensible conduct of this woman took an already electrified atmosphere and raised attention to a new level. I mean, just Jesus being there was a attention thing. So she was there. And what we see is that every believer, I think, needs to take this. If you're here this morning and you trust Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, we need to see ourselves in this woman's shoes. Because just like this woman, we are in debt up to our eyeballs to the mercy and the grace of God in redeeming us, just like she was. Deeply indebted to Jesus for rescuing us from the clutches and from the consequences of sin and delivering us into his family. And so she comes. And for all of this and more, our hearts, just like her heart, need to find ways to express our loving devotion to our master for what he's done for us and how he's blessed us. And from her bold and brief encounter, we learn what it means to lovingly worship Christ because we have been forgiven much. 
The first way we see it is through adoring love. She adores the Lord. 1 John 3, verse 18 says this, Let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. And one of the things we find from this woman is that she was about love in action. Her worship of Christ was not passive. I think sometimes we have this idea that when we say we're worshiping God, that somehow it's just kind of like there's going to be some feeling come upon us or whatever, and then we're going to have warm fuzzies, and then that's what it means to worship Jesus. Well, maybe that does. That could be part of it. But we see from her that real worship actively honors Christ. With a bottle of perfume in her hand, and she positioned herself where in the text? Verses 37 and 38. At the feet of Jesus. Now, he would have been reclining, okay? So he would have been laying down, okay? And so, she, so his feet behind him. And so she was along the wall probably because it wasn't not a big room. And she was there with her bottle of perfume and she was crying. Tears of regret. Tears of relief, which fell on his feet. And by washing his feet with her tears and wiping his feet with her hair and anointing them with perfume, she was elevating Jesus to his rightful place. A place that his host had not put him at. But she was elevating him his rightful place, which Simon treated him with disgrace. She treated him with honor. She knowingly embarked. It was a drastic, it was dangerous what she did. And it was costly to show Christ how much she loved him. Jesus was worth the risk of being mistreated in her mind. Jesus was worth the risk of being misunderstood as a seducer, not a worshiper of Jesus. Yeah. Jesus was worth the resources it cost her to provide costly perfume to anoint his feet. To anoint his feet. In, in his book, the book I mentioned earlier, Loving Christ, Joe Soul makes this penetrating observation. He says, The mediocrity of our Christianity becomes nakedly apparent when we stop to consider the last time we did something radical, risky, or expensive to simply say to Christ, You're worth it all. Radical, risky, or expensive to say to Jesus, You're worth it. Instead of staying home and earning money, Brandon decided to take a month of his summer vacation and to do something radical and risky and expensive and go to India. In a couple of months, we have a group from our church that are also doing something radical, risky, and expensive, and they're going to go to Haiti. Radical. Risky and expensive to try to teach a bunch of refugee children how to swim and to share Jesus with them at Camp Vera. It doesn't have to be something like that. But those are examples of what it means to be radical, risky, and expensive. But the woman also teaches us that adoring worship is worship that doesn't draw attention to itself. 
Adoring worship is not something that we want to do to be noticed or praised or be recognized. And so in the everyday aspects of our worship of Christ, regular, daily, spending time with God. I mean, Brandon mentioned, you know, is connecting with the Lord. That was critical. Well, it's kind of radical when you think about it, that you would actually take time and set aside time every day to focus your attention. Now, I'm an advocate of worship is all through the day. It's not just something, oh, I had 10 minutes in the morning, and that was my Jesus time. I think we should have that, probably more than 10 minutes, but, it, you know, sometime, I'm not going to give you a time because God doesn't say, oh, this is the amount of time, because worship is something that we should do all, the, all day long. But regular worship of God Set-aside time is radical, and it's risky, because you could be doing a lot of other things. I don't know about you, but if you ever spend time with God, Satan will automatically interject into your mind a million things that you ought to be doing, or you think you should be doing right now, or that will not get done if you actually spend time with God. It's radical, it's risky, it's radical, it's risky to conduct ourselves honorably with integrity and honesty in our workplace. Because nobody tells the truth all the time. Nobody actually reports all of their income. Nobody, you know, that's what we're told. It's radical, it's risky. And hard to be kind and patient and loving in our relationships with the people around us. But that's what it means to adoringly worship Christ, to share Christ with a coworker, to take a Wednesday out of our summer and come and actually pray next Wednesday night. It's kind of radical. It's kind of risky. It can be expensive. My brother in Christ, who's now over in a, in a country that I won't mention, in the Middle East, doing a marriage conference, has often said that we should be involved in what's called expensive worship. It costs us something. And for all of us, that varies at what we think it's costing us. Adoring worship, and then courageous worship, courageous love. It took extreme courage for this woman to walk into that room and to walk into that house. To enter into a hostile environment and openly align herself and to honor Christ in the midst of a group of people who were not honoring Christ and didn't want to honor Christ. She had to risk her personal safety. She, had to re she risked religious propriety. It wasn't proper for her to be there. She had to risk... Social acceptability. It wasn't socially acceptable. I wonder, and I ask myself this question, do I, do we love Jesus enough to risk being mistreated? To risk being misunderstood? To risk being maligned? To risk being rejected? Or to being ridiculed for the sake of Christ? I heard the story of Miriam. She was a young Jewish Jewess who lived in the Highland Park neighborhood of Chicago. Her father was a rabbi, and she became a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Her father used his influence and flew in other rabbis from Jerusalem to convince her to take back her conversion and to return to her Judaism. 
to no avail. Every year her father had a grand gala at his home and invited all sorts of prominent Jewish leaders. And at this gala, every year, he'd ask Miriam to play the piano and sing. And this year was no exception. And so he said, would you do this? And she said, yes, I would. She sat down at the piano and she started to play and to sing these words. Jesus, I my cross have taken all to leave and follow you. And when she finished the hymn, she got up from the piano and she left her home permanently because she knew that she had disgraced her parents and that she would not be welcome there. I wonder, would I be willing to do that for Jesus? Would I be willing to leave my comfort? Would I be willing to leave those I love, to say to him, you're worth it all, takes courage. This young lady in the story exhibited that kind of courage, the kind of courage that lovers of Jesus, all of us who name the name of Jesus, want to be able to demonstrate and want to be able to give to the Lord. But I would say to you today that if you're a follower of Jesus, you're Courage of loving him will be tested, if it hasn't already. It will be tested in your family. It will be tested in your community. It will be tested in your workplace. I remember receiving a phone call from a close member of my family. I was a pastor. You know what pastors are good for. You know, we can perform weddings and pray at family gatherings. That's pretty much what it, we're good for. Okay. And so I was asked to officiate at a wedding of someone very close to me. And I said, I'm sorry. I don't feel before the Lord that I'm able to do that because of the circumstances and the situation. You will be put in situations whether you are willing to stand up for Jesus or not. That's what this woman did. She went And I wonder, will we bow our heads when we pray, even when we're told that's not permitted? Will we speak up for Jesus in our communities, in our classrooms, in our living rooms? Will we resist and reject certain immoral activities? Will we reject and resist attending certain Functions and going and watching certain movies. Going around with others to certain parties. Will we risk promotions? Pay raises that would force us to compromise for the sake of Jesus. We need adoring love. She models courageous love. And thirdly, vulnerable love. In verses 37 and 38 and verses 44 through 46 which is the explanation of 37 and 38, we see that there was no pretense in the woman's worship. She was completely open, completely honest, completely vulnerable in the midst of this crowd, expressing her love for Jesus. Her tears of sorrow flowed from joy and from sadness. She was regretting what she had done, but she was grateful for what Christ had done for her. And so she let the tears flow. She was aware of Christ's holiness. 
and the forgiveness she had received. There was no pretense. There was no hesitation. She used the towel to dry his feet. And, and the text says that she kept wiping them with her hair. Kept wiping his feet. What we don't see in the text, that culturally for a woman in that culture to let her hair down was the ultimate expression of sensuality. So what do you think the Pharisees are thinking? This woman is at his feet. Her tears are wetting his feet. And she lets her hair down to wipe his feet with her hair to clean them and dry it. And she was kissing his feet, verse 38 says. She was kissing his feet. And Jesus declared, but she, since the time she came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. Verse 45. He didn't rebuke her. And can you imagine these people sitting there just appalled at his allowing this display of sensual affection? What kind of pervert is Jesus? They think. They might, they might think. The emotion, the sensuality, the affection, the passion is the same here that she knew all of her life. And the perfume that she used was probably the same perfume that she used in her home with her guests. She took all that she was before Christ. And she gave it to Jesus. Not in a perverted sense, but in a pure sense. This is who she was. And she gave it to the Lord. She was vulnerable for him. Here I am, Lord. No pretense. This is me. I just, I give all that I have to you. This is convicting to me. Do I give all that I am? Do I give my passion? Do I give my intelligence? Do I give my, the money, the possessions, all that I have previously used for sinful and selfish purposes for Jesus? It's yours, Lord. You have it. You have me. Isn't it crazy? I was at a softball game this summer. Some, some girl hit a home run in softball. Man, you, the crowd erupted. Everybody's clapping. Yeah. And we come to church. And we sing with our sad faces. I mean, that's the praise team. I mean, you, you say, oh, I wish they would smile at us. Well, they're probably tired of smiling at people who are frowning. We're so happy to be in Christ that we frown. And we don't even know what, we couldn't clap. I mean, I know, I know most of us are rhythmically challenged. But we, we can actually, you know, keep a beat. We can clap for a home run, or we can clap and raise our hands for a touchdown, but we don't. We're Jesus people. And Jesus people are reserved and refined and Pharisees. Or maybe. Now, I'm not saying everybody has to be the same expressiveness as everybody else. I'm just saying, in my own heart, I want to be able to give all of who I am to Jesus. I'm not there yet. I'm preaching to me. But isn't it wonderful 
that she was open, she was honest, she was passionate, she was genuine, she was vulnerable, and she just let it all out there because of who Jesus was. We come week in and week out and sing about Jesus and praise God for who He is and what He's done, and I wonder if we really mean it or if we really understand it as well as she did. Our past devices used for His devotion our previous self given to sin and selfishness surrendered to the cross of Christ. I don't know, there's something magnetic about her, something authentic, something electric, something genuine, something that says, yeah, I wish I could worship God like she did. There was adoring worship. There was courageous worship. There was vulnerable worship. There was humble worship in her heart. The position that she took and the practice that she practices she engaged in engaged in, revealed her perspective of who Jesus was. See, what happens is, it's in stark contrast, and that's intentional in the text. What she did was in stark contrast to what Simon, the Pharisee, was doing. His arrogance was in contrast to her adoration. Uh, I want you to see in the text, and I made special emphasis when I read it in verses 44 through 46, where it says, you, speaking of Simon, and then, but she, in reference to the woman. You, but she. You, but she. I want you to look at me, with me, if you will, that there's a, there's a couple of ways uh, in which we see her humility coming out, and our humility as well, her position, our position. Verse 44, and turning toward the woman, he said to her, do you see this woman? I entered your house, and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. Now, how can she wipe? She can't do this standing up. She's at the feet of Jesus. That's her position. That's the position of a servant. That's the position where a servant would be. And then with her practice, there are several ways that she demonstrates humility that serve as a model for us through her remorse and uh, over sin and rejoicing over it. In verse 44, she was wiping her, his feet with her tears. Now, Simon had neglected to provide water for Jesus, which was customary in that day for them to wash their feet. In fact, usually they would have a servant come and wash their feet because the roads were dusty and that was just a sign of honoring your guests. Yet this woman provided her tears to wash Jesus' feet. From grief and from gratitude, she did so. Then we see respect. It's our respect for the Savior. In verse 45, uh, what, what do we read? You gave me no kiss. Standard customary greeting in that day. A kiss on each cheek or a kiss on the cheek was standard as you would recognize. She didn't kiss Jesus' cheek. She was kissing his feet. She was kissing his feet. And he says... She has this woman. You didn't even give me a kiss. She has not ceased to kiss me, my feet. And then there is reverence that we see in verse 46. In verse 46, you did not anoint my head with oil. Now, oil was very common and very cheap. But what did the woman do? You would anoint their head of the honored guest. She anointed the feet of Jesus with her costly perfume. Her costly perfume. All that she did revealed 
All that Simon did revealed a diminished view of Jesus. All that the woman did spoke of the elevated view she had of Jesus. In fact, all that Simon should have done was to treat Jesus as an equal. What this woman did was to treat Jesus as her superior. She wasn't even fit to give him a kiss on the cheek. She wasn't fit to anoint his head with oil. She was at his feet, humbly worshiping Jesus. She made no attempt to pretend that he was her equal or to suggest that she was worthy to be in his presence. She literally camped at his feet to minimize herself and to maximize Jesus. And that's what I see in humble worship. It's that we, we worship to magnify Christ and not ourselves, to minimize ourselves and to magnify Jesus. Any action that diverts attention away from us and directs it to Jesus, that's humble worship. It's setting up for the first service when nobody's here on Saturday or Sunday morning. It's helping tear down when other people are milling around and drinking their coffee and eating their snacks. And you're doing it's serving in the nursery during the services. You're not drawing attention. There's obscure worship that's humble. It's coming into praise practice when nobody else knows that you're even here. But it's also not just those obscure things, but it's doing things that are not done for your own attention or not trying to draw attention to yourself. That can be teaching a Sunday school class. It can be preaching. It can be whatever we do with a heart attitude that's directed to give attention to Christ and not to ourselves. The final lesson we see is grateful love. And this becomes the, actually the, the foundation for all of it. I want you to look, and I'm gonna, I brought it out in verse 40, <clears throat> and Jesus answered. What did he answer? The thoughts of Simon. I love that. You talk about an omniscient, all-knowing God. And Jesus sat there and he knew what Simon was thinking. This was not just well-educated guessing. This was an accurate understanding of Simon's heart and his mind, and Jesus answered it. And the gratitude, that gratitude is the foundation of loving worship, comes to us in two ways. First, the point of the parable. The parable that he tells about the two debtors is intended to bring Simon to the place of realizing why the woman's doing what she's doing. I love the way Jesus stroked Simon's ego. Because what was he going to say? Oh, the guy, the guy, the one that owed 500 and the one that owed 50 and he forgave him. Which one do you think will love him more? Well, I suppose the one whom he forgave the most. Well, that was pretty brilliant. I mean, duh. But Simon was caught. He had to say it. That's the point. The one who's forgiven most loves most. Simon was forced to acknowledge hypothetically the reason for and the rightness of great love that's displayed. Jesus' comparison of Simon's neglect to the woman's respect in verses 44 through 46 sets the stage for the conclusion. Now he drives home the reason for the parable and the contrast between Simon's treatment of Jesus and the woman's treatment of Jesus in verse 47 introduced by for this reason here's the conclusion Simon 
it was the head of an honored guest that should be uh, anointed. No, he didn't do that. He didn't care about that. We see the practical application of the parable in verses 47 through 50. And this application actually vindicates Jesus and indicts Simon. Indictment means that he's guilty. He's guilty of doing what he shouldn't have been doing with, with Jesus. What we see here is like the one in the parable who was forgiven most, the woman was forgiven most and loved most. She understood that, and that's why she did. Because she loved much, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. How do we know that? Because she loved much. She loved much. See, some would read this text, and they'd say, oh, so the reason she was forgiven was because she loved much. No, the reason she loved much was because she was forgiven much. Grateful love is the result of, not the reason for, forgiveness. Say that again. Loving worship is the result of, not the reason for, forgiveness. When we are forgiven much, we love much. It's not why we love that we're forgiven. It's that we love because we are forgiven. It's gratitude out of a grateful heart we love because we understand how much we have been given. Loving Christ is a response of a heart gripped by an awareness of how much we have been forgiven. And that, I think, is a problem in the church of Jesus Christ because if we grow up in the church, we sometimes don't think we really have that much of which we have been forgiven. We're really pretty good people. The longer I walk with Jesus the more he reveals the sinfulness of my heart, the more the selfishness and the pride and the sinfulness and the greed and the jealousy that comes to the head, I realize more of what I have been forgiven. This woman had been forgiven much. Forgiveness is a function of faith. He makes that very clear. <laughs> if you look at verse 48, and he said to the woman, your sins have been forgiven. And they, they, that got their shorts in a twist. They were like, whoa, 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 what, what, are, we, what are we doing here? We can't, we can't, who is he who's forgiven sins? It reminds me of the parable, you know, the paralytic that was lowered down in Matthew chapter 9. And Jesus says, your, your sins are forgiven. And then, and then he understood again. He understood what they were thinking and he answered what they were thinking. And he says, which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to take up your bed and walk? And says, so that you know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins, I say to you, Take up your pallet and walk. Because it's easy to say your sins are forgiven, but he proved that he had the power to do it by raising the man up. Here he says at the end, verse 50, and he said to the woman, what? Your love demonstrated to me is the reason you're forgiven and therefore you're saved. No, he says your faith has saved you. Your trust in me as your Lord and Master, the one who forgives your sins, is the reason you are saved. And because you are saved, you have been forgiven much, you love much. Recently, I, I told um, someone that was traveling out west, I said, hey, if you ever go out west and you're in Yellowstone, I said, you should try going out the northeast entrance of Yellowstone National Park and go down through Sunlight Canyon down to Cody, Wyoming. I said, the, the, the view is fabulous. 
Well, knowing about that is maybe helpful. But unless you've been on the path, the vistas mean nothing. We can know about what it is to lovingly worship Christ. But unless we've been on the path, unless we go down the path to doing it, and the path to lovingly worship Christ is to realizing the extent of our wickedness. We're all sinful and separated from God and deserving of condemnation in hell. And then repenting, turning and saying, God, that's not the life I want. I want to live for you. I want to be forgiven of that. I want to have power to to walk in the way you want me to walk. And then receiving Christ as our Lord and Savior. And then rejoicing that my sins have been, which are many, have been forgiven. That's the path. So if you're here today and you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you, you, you've, you, you're on that path. But maybe you need a little refresher course like this woman can give us in what it means to meditate on and be aware of more fully of the extent to which I've been forgiven so that I can express adoring love. I'm willing to risk, do something radical, risky, and expensive for Jesus. Courageous love. I'm willing to be mistreated and misunderstood. I'm willing to stand up for Christ and to be one of his children. Vulnerable love. Lord, I'm willing to take all of who I am. I'm just going to give it to you. It may be awkward. It may be, uh, you know, unsettling sometimes. I may not be sure of what I'm doing, but it is yours. I'll be humble in my love. I'll seek by God's grace to magnify Jesus and minimize Steve Smith. Or you put your name in there. And it will be grateful love. Lord, I want you to teach me how much you have forgiven me so that I can express to you more fully the love you are deserving of. This is not payback. This is not somehow trying to pay God back for what he's done. No, it's just a natural response of a loving heart that you have been forgiven. Yeah, I've been forgiven, and we, we express it to Jesus. If you're here and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, my challenge to you, is to understand that your sin separates you from the God of the universe. You're like Simon the Pharisee who has not been forgiven much and you don't know that you've been forgiven much, but God wants you to be forgiven of all your sin and then you can turn from your sin and trust in Christ and experience new life. You can be delivered from the clutches of sin and the consequences of sin and live forever with Him. And what better way to be reminded of all that Christ has done for us than to take the bread and take the cup, which are symbols of his body broken and his blood shed as the payment for our sins so that all who would believe could be free. And when we do that, if we approach it properly, it can be helpful in making us more fully aware of how much we've been forgiven, how much it cost to purchase our pardon. And that can stir within us a deeper devotion and service to Christ. If you're here this morning and you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I invite you to take a few moments and ask and to meditate upon what the bread and the cup mean for you. Search your heart and ask God to reveal sin in your life that you may not have thought was all that bad, but you can confess it and repent and turn to get your heart clean with God, your fellowship with God restored. If you don't know Jesus, 
Turn from your sin and trust him. And then come as God leads you. And partake of this bread and this cup in celebration of what it means to be forgiven. And as an act of worship to him. Father, thank you for this woman who has much to teach us about what it means to worship you. What loving worship involves. And why we're involved in it. Take our hearts and speak and do what you need to do in each of us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, some of us have uh, been able to uh, see some things this week and reflect on the fact that 50 years ago from this week, man uh, stepped foot on the moon. And that's, that's an amazing thing. It's hard to believe it has happened still. But, you know, as we're gathered here this morning, it, it strikes me that while that is amazing, how uh, much greater and more incomprehensible is it to think that God has stepped foot on the earth and that Jesus left his home, he left his glory that he was surrounded by to take on the form of a man. And as we're going to sing in this song, to, to become sin on our behalf. So uh, let's just continue uh, just with grateful hearts as we praise him this morning. so oh. 